Today we'll be reading from Acts 6, 1 through 7. And in the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 914. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we look at God's word. Gracious Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather, to gather to sing, to gather to pray, to gather to uh, commit our children to you. Uh, And Lord, what a privilege it is to gather to listen, uh, not to me, but to you through your word. That's what we want to hear this morning, God. And so I pray that your spirit would take your word and would apply it to our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear you eyes to see you, and that your spirit would be uh, boldly changing us, Lord, to make us more and more like Christ. Uh, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school uh, applying for my first quote-unquote real job, there was only one industry that I was pretty sure that I did not want to work in, and that was food service. I had friends who were waiters and waitresses. I had friends who worked in fast food. I did not want to come home smelling like grease every day. I did not want the anxiety of trying to balance a tray of 16 plates and not drop them on somebody. And I did not want to put up with serving people who were virtually impossible to satisfy. there are whole blogs. As anybody, I know there, there are people here who have worked as waitresses, waiters, and so on, yes? You don't have to be ashamed. It's okay. We're here for you. It's a hard job. It's a very hard job. There are whole blogs out there uh, where wait staff simply vent about the ridiculous customers and experiences that they've had, the, the stingy tips or the rude comments Uh, I read about one uh, incident in Harvard Square where an irate customer stood up in the middle of the restaurant and shouted, who here thinks the service stinks? And the entire place applauded. That's hard. That's hard. I didn't want to deal with that when I was looking for my first job. And so I did something far more glamorous and satisfying. I sacked groceries instead. Serving people is hard work. 
It, it really is. It can make you feel small and insignificant and overlooked. Uh, it can fuel bitterness uh, and resentment at, at how little we often receive in return for the hard work. And yet, when it's done out of love for someone that you care about, serving is one of the most satisfying things in the world, regardless of whether or not you get anything in return. I mean, you think of a mother and her new baby, as we dedicated Elise, you know, a little bit ago. When, when, a, when a child is born, that is a one-sided relational transaction. You are doing all the serving, and, and you know, when, when Elizabeth would, would nurse Elise, she didn't say thank you. You know, Jim would change her diapers. She didn't say thank you. She didn't ever left a tip after a meal. But, but I'm pretty sure that, that your hearts couldn't contain any more love and joy at the privilege of serving your daughter. And so, so when service is born out of love, you know, it can be hard, but it can be a gift at the same time. And the gift of serving plays an essential role in leadership in the church. Uh, as a church, we have been devoting ourselves to growing in the ability to apply the good news of Jesus to all of life. Our vision as a congregation is to be what we call a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. We want the good news of Jesus to shape everything about us. And so we've been talking about that and looking about at that this year. What practical difference does the gospel, what Jesus did for us on the cross, what practical difference does that make for all of life? And right now in the series, what practical difference does it make for life in the church and specifically church leadership? Last week we looked at 1 Peter 5 and how the gospel ought to shape eldership in the church. How elders are called to shepherd the flock both with the gospel and by the gospel. So in other words, what Christ has accomplished for us, what he's done to, to deal with our sin and to bring us to God, that is what elders must lead and feed and protect the flock with. And that is what they must themselves depend on in order to do that well. They shepherd with the gospel and by the gospel. So that was what we looked at last week. But there are two offices, two specific offices of leadership in the New Testament. Elders, which are sometimes called overseers, and deacons. And it's the second office that we want to talk about this morning. We see, for instance, both of these offices in Paul's address to the church in ancient Philippi, Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, so that's the whole church, with the overseers or elders and deacons. And we see it most clearly, these two offices together, in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul is giving instructions to Timothy about establishing healthy leadership in the different churches that he's serving. He first talks about the qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then talks about the qualifications for deacons in verses 8 through 13. So there's two offices, elders and deacons. And we want to talk about deacons today. What in the world is a deacon? What does it do? 
the office of deacon, what is, what is it for? Well, the word itself simply means servant. It means servant. Sometimes we translate that as minister. So at the very simplest level, just by definition of the word itself, the office of deacon involves one of the most difficult yet rewarding tasks on earth, serving others. That's what it's about. Now, if you step back and think about that, though, aren't we all called to service, right? You know, uh, you look through the New Testament, isn't, aren't all of uh, Christ's followers called to serve others? And the answer is absolutely. Uh, in fact, you, uh, you see, for instance, in First uh, Peter 4.10, where the call for all Christians to be servants We'll even use the exact same word from which we get deacon. So 1 Peter 4.10, it says, As each of you have received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's the same word from which Paul gets the word deacon in 1 Timothy 3. So servanthood, it's not just essential to leadership. It's part of following Christ. It's something all of us are called to. And yet there is a specific leadership office devoted to that, uh, which, uh, sometime, which has special responsibilities and has pretty significant qualifications. If you compare the qualifications for both the office of elder and the office of deacon in First Timothy, they're pretty similar. There are a couple differences, but they're, they're quite similar. For instance, if you have your Bibles, uh, and hopefully you've got them open to Acts 6, keep your thumb there. But go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 3, which is about, I don't know, six books after that or so, something like that. So 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 8 through 13. This is where Paul lays out the qualifications for those who will serve as deacons. Verse 8, he says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So you see kind of a self-control character quality there. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They need to believe the gospel and be committed to it. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or you'll notice most of your Bibles have a footnote there. Uh, I think the better translation here is women. So women, likewise, must be dignified. Uh, I think that makes, you know, it's the same Greek word for wives and women, and I think women makes better sense of the context here. If you think about the qualifications for eldership earlier, which involves greater authority and responsibility in overseeing the church, it would be strange to see no explicit qualification for elders' wives, but then to have greater restrictions for the office of servanthood. So I think Paul is addressing women here in this specific verse, Um, women perhaps like Phoebe in Romans 16 and so on. So women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And then addressing the men, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, 
if we're all supposed to be servants, why have a specific office devoted to servanthood? And why have such high requirements, you know, maturity and character involved in that? Uh, what, where does that office come from? What does it do? How does it relate to the other leadership office of elders? And again, what difference does the gospel of Jesus make in all of that? Well, unlike the office of elder, we're, we're not actually told a whole lot in the New Testament about the specific responsibilities of deacons. You, we can read chapters on what elders are supposed to be about. Uh, we're not told that much. But most people, for good reasons, I think, uh, see the story in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, as kind of setting the pattern for what will eventually become the office of deacons in the early church. We don't see the this technical word for deacon in there, but we do see the word that comes from, that, that we get uh, the root of it, if you will. The word for serve comes up several times in that passage. And so if you, again, now go back to where your thumb was, if, it, if you kept your thumb in Acts 6, let's, let's look that direction there. Because in this chapter, we see really the essential role that service plays in both the care of the church and the advance of the gospel. Why service, servanthood, is so crucial to leadership in the church of Christ. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, uh, or if you're not, uh, in short, the book of Acts is basically about the growth of the gospel in the early church. So it picks up the story right where the gospels leave off. Jesus, at the end of the gospels, has died for sins, he's risen again, he has uh, appeared to his followers, the apostles, and he has sent them on a mission to make disciples of all nations. And then he ascends to his Father in heaven. Acts picks up right at that same point where Jesus is commissioning his apostles to make disciples and then ascends to heaven. And so the story of Acts is basically the unfolding of what they do in following Christ to make disciples for him in all nations, in the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he sends at Pentecost. And so we see the growth of the early church through the witness of the disciples, of the apostles. And as the story continues, you see more and more people placing their faith in Jesus, more and more people becoming followers of Christ. And not only are they believing in Jesus, they're also becoming part of a new family part of what we call the church. A family that went out of its way to take care of each other. For instance, we read in Acts chapter 4, verses uh, 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need incredible generosity as a family. Not not a needy person among them. That is until the church grew to the point that the apostles could no longer keep up with the distribution. And that's what you see happening at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. So verse 1, Acts 6, 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. The Hebrews were the Hebrew-speaking Jews, both of 
whom these, these particular individuals had become part of the, the family of God in Christ. And somehow the widows among the Greek-speaking Jews who had lost their family, their means of support, who were dependent on that generosity, they were somehow being neglected, overlooked, as the apostles were distributing the food and the, and the income that, that everyone was sharing to take care of one another. So what to do? What to do? The main thing Jesus sent his apostles to do is preach the gospel. But you cannot neglect the care of the body. And as the church grows, they can no longer do both of those things well. What are they going to do? Well, verses 2 through 6, they come up with a solution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the, of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. By the way, the word serve there is the word from which we get our word deacon. Therefore, verse 3, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. They committed them to this special role of serving. So how did the apostles guard both the well-being of the church and continue to preach the word? The answer is they need help. They need help. They can't do it by themselves. They need gifted, capable servants. And as the apostles later entrust the preaching of the word and the shepherding of the flock to the elders in each congregation, it makes sense to think that the elders will need that same kind of help too, that they won't be able to do it all themselves. They need faithful people who can share the leadership load of the church through their service. And there are three ways that we see these seven men in Acts 6 uh, sharing in that leadership load. So first, they served real needs in the congregation. This wasn't just a, you know, a, a formal office or something. This was work. They were serving real needs in the congregation. They were ministers of mercy. They were helping care for those who were suffering. They were their service expressed tangible love to the body, the kind of love that shows the world what Christ is like. That's the kind of love that they were privileged to be able to share among the body in caring for the well-being of the widows. And because that care involved handling the money and, and things like that, significant responsibilities, you see why there were qualifications for the role. They had to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They had to be trustworthy. They had to be mature, honest, godly people. And you see similar qualifications in that list we read in 1 Timothy 3 as well. For instance, deacons were not to be greedy for dishonest gain. If you're going to be entrusted with those kinds of things, you need to have the character that makes you trustworthy. So, so the first way that they shared the load was by serving real needs. But there was more at stake in that story 
than just the tangible needs of the Greek-speaking widows. There was also a brewing conflict around it. There was a, a subtle conflict that was rising up in the church. And so second, their service also preserved unity. It preserved unity. One author describes the role of deacons as both servants and shock absorbers. You know, in helping the church run more smoothly by helping guard areas where things look like they are potential to fall apart. So there's, there's a, a guarding of unity and a helping things run more smoothly to, to keep relationships healthy that comes out of their service. That's one of the fruits of their service. And when they do that, meeting needs and, and guarding unity, helping run things run smoothly, when they do that, then third, they free up the apostles and later the elders for their primary role, which is the ministry of the word and prayer. What we talked about last week with elders, preaching the gospel and shepherding the flock. And so... If you look at Acts 6, how does that help us understand the leadership role that we call deacons? A fair amount of confusion surrounding that role, just as there's a lot of confusion of what are elders supposed to do and and why do we have them and so on. You know, if you go into lots of different churches, you're bound to find lots of different understandings of what a deacon is and what a deacon does. Uh, In some traditions, the deacons play more the role of the elders, in the spiritual oversight of the church, and then they have a board of trustees who do more of the deacon-like things. Uh, in other church traditions, the deacons kind of simply serve in the worship service. They have an exclusively liturgical role. Or sometimes it's a stepping stone, kind of an internship process for becoming eventually you know, an elder or a priest or something. So you know, in, in our context here in Westgate, uh, our deacons are entrusted with the business matters of the church. So the budget in the building, uh, things that we sometimes unfortunately think of as non-spiritual things. You know, sometimes we'll hear that categorization that the elders take care of the spiritual stuff, deacons take care of the non-spiritual stuff. I don't like that categorization. Uh, I don't think it's true. Uh, you know, if the deacons had to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm pretty sure the tasks they're called to are spiritual tasks, even if it's changing light bulbs and counting money. The Spirit of God is at work uh, in there. And, and so, so what are they supposed to do? Well, I really do think that Acts 6 helps us answer that question. What kind of service will help address the needs of people, help things run more smoothly so as to prevent unnecessary conflict and free up the elders and pastors for their main calling of preaching and shepherding. That's what deacons should do. Whatever the answer is to that question, that's what deacons should do. Service that addresses needs, smooths out conflicts, and frees up elders for word ministry. That's the role of deacons, I think we see from the pattern set in Acts 6. And as you might guess, that looks different in every single church. It changes depending on your context, on on where your church is and in what's happening in and through your church. It's always going to look different. And frankly, I think that's one of the reasons why the New Testament leaves it somewhat uh, vague, is that it allows us to apply it flexibly, 
according to its main function of serving needs, smoothing out conflict, and freeing up the elders for word ministry. And so if, you just, if we just take a minute and think about Westgate itself, is it right for our deacons to focus so much uh, attention to our budget, for instance? You know, everything from counting the money to payroll and bills to service contracts and, and watching spending patterns of different ministries and so on. Or, or on our building, a lot of attention to the building that, that we have here. Uh, that God has entrusted to us, the cleaning, the maintenance, the updates, the renovations, the outside use, uh, not to mention things like the grounds and, and uh, uh, helping you know, with coffee hours and the host of other things that deacons end up finding on their plate. Is that what they should be doing? Well, do those services meet needs and help things run more smoothly? Do they free up the elders and pastors for the ministry of the word and prayer? Then, yes, that's a great thing for the deacons to spend their time and energy doing. And it's not a non-spiritual thing. It's a very spiritual service to God. Now, is that the only thing that our deacons should be doing? And right now they're sweating, saying, we can't add anything to the list. Come on. You know, is that the only thing? Not necessarily. Again, it's a flexible application, I think. Um, there may be other things that come up. You, perhaps, you know, we could explore a more direct role in benevolence, which we see that aspect in Acts 6. Um, but the, the point is, it, 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 helping what God has called us to do as a church, helping that move forward through service. That's the essential role of deacons, which sometimes might even require more deacons and so on. Um, but another thing it's good for us to keep in mind when we think about this is, although we at Westgate have a, a formal deacon board um, of godly servants, by the way, uh, there are a lot of other people among us who are entrusted with servanthood-related responsibilities that are kind of deacon-like in function, even though they're not part of that formal board or office. Uh, so, for instance, you think of Becky's work in the office. Uh, as doing the administration, or Caroline's work as bookkeeper, or Sarah and Drew's work in serving the direction of our music ministry, or Lawrence and Sarah's work directing our student ministries, or our missions board who serve to direct and oversee the care and support of our missionaries. Now, none of those, uh, we don't call any of those deacons, and we don't expect any of them to show up for the deacon board meetings, and so on and so forth. But if you had to pick... One of the two offices the New Testament describes for leadership, this would be the one that those service-related responsibilities would fall into, uh, to deacons. And so you might say, if you wanted to, we have deacons for music and deacons for missions and deacons for administration, in addition to our deacons for building and finances and everything else that comes up, Um, all of whom serve together for the good of the body and the advance of the gospel. So that's what deacons are called to do. But that's a lot of hard work. And again, it can, it can often be thankless work. Uh, it's the kind of work that, sadly, nobody really notices unless you do it wrong. Serious. Uh, 
you know, you could put together a flawless worship folder for six months in a row. Make a typo one week, people notice. You don't notice a clean and well-organized building. In fact, that's kind of the idea, that it shouldn't draw your attention away. But you do notice it when it's dirty and out of order. And, and that can wear on people. Even people who love the service that they do, that can wear on them after a while. That can uh, create, uh, over time, a negative effect on people's view of the church, even. Um, and it's sad that that can happen, because... Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3.13, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There is dignity in this office. There is honor and a deepening faith in Christ. If, if our deacons are feeling like neglected waitresses whose only solace is to blog about how bad their customers were, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. So part of that means as a congregation, we need to not only notice when things go wrong, but when things go right. And to say something, to say thank you. It's amazing how simple that is, but how much of a difference it can make. To not presume upon... I mean, it's... It's, it's interesting. You, you, I show up in my office and all of a sudden my trash is clean. It's not like some magic fairy elf showed up and dumped that. Somebody was there after hours or during the day and did that. We need to say thank you for those things. And it means thinking of ways that we can follow the lead of our deacons and their servant hearts and help out and serve as well. And this is the point where I put in a shameless plug for the workday on May 16th. Uh, it's a great chance for all of us to come together and work together to help lighten that load and, and keep take care of our facility, of the things God has entrusted us for, so that they are more useful for ministry. That's the point. Not so that it looks nice, but so that they're useful for ministry. But when it comes down to it, just as it's tempting, we talked about this last week, it's, it's tempting for elders to think that the greatest problem in their shepherd role is over there. It's, it's the sheep that they have to, you know, it's tempting to think that when in fact, in reality, the greatest problem in the shepherd is the shepherd's heart. The same is true in that the greatest threat to a deacon's joy in serving is not ungrateful people or, quote, grouchy customers, but an ungrounded heart. That's the greatest threat to the joyful service of a deacon, a heart that's distracted or fueled by selfish interests instead of love, a heart that would rather be served than to serve, in short, a heart that's not anchored in the gospel. And so here we come then to that bigger question, what difference does the good news of Jesus make for deacon service? Faithful deacons serve for the gospel and by the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus that gives us the perspective for what we're doing, the pattern for how to do it, and the power to do it, to actually do it. And so, first, faithful deacons serve 
for the gospel. That's the first application point. They see their work as an integral part of the church's mission to make Christ known. And, and, and keep in mind that even though that's a specifically applied thing for those who, who serve as deacons, we're all called to be servants, so nobody gets to tune out here, okay? Good. So, so faithful deacons serve for the gospel. Their work, they see it as integrally related to the advance of the mission to make disciples for Christ. Look again at Acts 6. Notice how this short little story starts and ends. It starts by mentioning the growth of the gospel. Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. And it ends on the very same note in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What's at stake in this passage is not merely the love and care of widows, though that is crucial and and utterly important, but that's not the only thing at stake here. The caring service that the seven provided was ultimately about the advance of the gospel of Jesus throughout Jerusalem. That was the context. That was the perspective that put it all into focus. So, so they, the seven might not have been out there preaching uh, like the apostles, though some of them did. You know, if you keep reading, you see Stephen and then later Philip had a very effective preaching ministry as well. Uh, but their labor, even if they're not out there doing that, their labor is no less integral to the gospel's advance. And it's that passion, not for my glory, but for Christ's glory that ought to motivate and drive deacon service. The fact that that Jesus looks good when we serve well. That's the goal. Faithful deacons serve for the gospel. But they also serve by the gospel. Because it's the good news of Christ that, again, provides both the pattern and the power for that service. What to do and, and, and how to make it possible. So, Think for a moment, if, if the gospel, if the good news of Jesus is the pattern for deacon service, think about our Savior, Jesus Christ, for a minute. Remember what he said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guess what word Mark uses there for serve? It's the same word as deacon. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, again, last week, just as Christ, the good shepherd, is the pattern for elders in their shepherd role, so Christ, the suffering servant, is the pattern for deacons in their serving role. Think of the pattern of a service in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. There's an other-centeredness in this. Verse 5. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Jesus' pattern for servanthood. Not, you know, here, here is someone who, from all eternity, is true God of God. You know, perfectly co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. But he does not count his equality with God something to be exploited for selfish gain, to make himself look good. Instead, he empties himself of self. He takes his status and his glory and he sets it aside out of love. Out of love. He takes the form of a servant. That's the attitude that Paul tells us we ought to have among us. All of us, not just our deacons. Humility, selfless love, the kind of love that brings joy in my service regardless of what I get in return from it. Okay, so what makes that possible? Because last time I checked, I'm not Jesus and neither are you. So, so how is that kind of real selfless, humble service possible? How do we follow that pattern? The only way we can follow the pattern of the gospel in our service is if we depend on the power of the gospel in our service. It's the only way. My heart is too weak. It's too worried about what you're going to think of me or whether or not I'm going to get the honor I think I deserve and so on and so forth. The only way I can follow the pattern is if I depend on the power of the gospel, of what Christ has done for me through the cross and his resurrection and the Spirit's power in my life. And so we're back to where we always land in this series, aren't we? We must personally apply the gospel to our own hearts in order to be able to serve out of the gospel in the lives of others. We have to apply the gospel to our life. So let me read a little bit more from, uh, from Philippians 3 and remind us again the truth of this gospel that changes us and enables us to be joyful servants. This is Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, Paul says. So, you know, whatever tips I might receive, whatever praise, whatever power or recognition or influence or prestige, whatever gain, whatever I could possibly look at and say, this is beneficial to me. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
The truth of the gospel is that we have something in Christ so valuable that we can gladly lose everything else and really have lost nothing. The truth of the gospel is that I don't have to find my identity and my value in what I can get from others because I already have everything in Christ. I don't have to protect myself from being taken advantage of by others. Always a risk when you're serving someone. Because one, if I am taken advantage, I'm simply sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And two, whatever it is they might try and take away from me, they can't take away Christ. There's nothing they can do ultimately to me if I'm secure in him. The truth of the gospel, that that Christ has died for my sins and has ascribed to me his righteousness, is that I don't have to serve people in order to gain my acceptance, either from them or from God. It's not what it's about. Because my acceptance depends on Christ's righteousness in my place, not my own. The truth of the gospel is that because I have been so deeply loved to to my very core, that I am therefore able by God's Spirit to love others deeply. And that love will always show itself in laying my life down in service. So deacons, do you know that you are loved by God? Do you know that? That you are really, really, really loved by God. Not because of what you do for him or for this church. But because you belong to Christ. In our house we have a saying that we often use. So often Chloe can actually complete the line. I love you because you're mine. Why do you love me? Why do I love you? Because you're mine. Not because you obey me, not because of what you do, not because of how you make me look. I love you because you're mine, period. That's the love that God has for his children. He loves us because we're his, not because of what we do for him or how we even make him look. Because we belong to him. And that's the love his family ought to have for one another. Even if, quote unquote, customers are sometimes ungrateful and cranky, they're still family. They're still family. We love them not because of how they treat us, but because they're mine. And the gospel's what makes that possible, nothing else. Faithful deacons serve for the gospel, that's the goal. And by the gospel. That's the pattern and the power. 